It really wasn't difficult to choose what to preach from today. Of course, uh, as we're preparing to make the move to Indiana and and, uh, transition things here at Parkside, we're not going to be able to make it through all of Exodus or even the first few chapters. And so um, looking at uh, the life of Moses and the people of Israel and the story of Exodus, I'm jumping ahead to the the, the significant 10th uh, plague and specifically the, uh, the institution of the Passover for the people of Israel that's, uh, that's in chapter 12. Now, when, uh, when we came out here to start meeting in the park some months ago, we started in the Sermon on the Mountain, and it, it, was, it was kind of easy to be out here and imagine Jesus preaching in an outdoor environment with, uh, with birds around and uh, looking at, at flowers and, and other, uh, other wildlife. But there's a question that I have for how this word got out about the Passover. How is Moses preaching in the land of Egypt? Whereas this is a bright, sunny, green environment, the, the, the people of Israel were under this immense persecution and even more so as the plagues intensified and tensions mounted in the land of Egypt and the Israelites were looking to God to fulfill his promise but not seeing how this was going to happen. Pharaoh just kept hardening his heart over and over again and you you imagine how this word is getting out Moses speaking to the leaders and going to other people a big crowd gathered together somehow and Moses and Aaron speaking to them and we aren't given many details of how this message would have gotten out but we are given Moses's words that he speaks so it's not like this was just a, a written memo that went out to the people and imagine receiving this word and these instructions as you're uh, in experiencing this type of uh, stressful environment, not being sure where to go, where you'll live, what the next few months or even weeks are going to hold for you. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh at night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head, with its legs, and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but God tells us in his word that his word stands forever. Let me pray and ask God to help us in this teaching. O Lord, in your power, Will you direct our hearts and our minds that we would not be 
arrogant or even hard-hearted as Pharaoh was, or even as the people of Israel were as they wandered in the, in the desert, the wilderness. But may we receive it with soft hearts and attentive ears, that our lives would be transformed as we behold the Lamb of God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. John the Baptist, as he's announcing the public ministry of Jesus, of course, Jesus at 30 years of age, John the Baptist screams out not once but twice, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. There's a story of Charles Spurgeon when he was displaced from his uh, normal place in the London Tabernacle. Story of Charles Spurgeon when he was displaced because they were doing some construction on his church building, having to meet in a large auditorium, a 10,000 person auditorium in, in the city of London back in the 1800s. And testing the sound of an empty theater, he walked in and he screamed out, or he had a famously loud, boisterous voice. He just thundered, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the story goes that uh, evidently there was a man who was doing some work at the far reaches unseen in this, this new venue and heard these words and was struck to the heart. And it, it moved him even to come a few days later to Spurgeon and say, I was transformed by that call. It was like the voice of God calling to me and I repented of my sins and I believed. The words that John speaks, behold the Lamb of God, point everybody, all of the listeners there, right back to this central event of the Passover and the central figure of the Passover for the Jewish people, and that was the Lamb that was killed. Multiple lambs, one per household. Don't worry, when they pile up, they go, and then there's a time of, uh, of some quiet, so it'll, it'll all even out. The lamb was the central figure of, of the, the, this, this Passover event for four days, four or five days. On the tenth day, you were to set aside this perfect lamb, a year old, no blemishes. And for five days, you were to anticipate that this would be the lamb that would be slaughtered or killed for a Passover feast. And throughout Scripture, God identifies salvation coming through a lamb. Now, there are many other animals that are used for sacrifices, and sometimes those are impressive oxen and large beasts. Kings were to sacrifice these large animals because they could afford to do so, to provide for the people, and all the people would come to eat. But the lamb held a central place in the hearts. And of course, it's fulfilled by Jesus who identifies himself as the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Looking back here to the Passover. If you're following the Jewish calendar, you know that last night was the celebration of the Passover in, if you live in the nation of Israel. And tonight is a celebration of Passover if you, uh, if you live in outside of that nation, if you're part of the diaspora. It's tied so closely with the celebration of Easter because it was the Passover that the disciples and Jesus were coming to celebrate. It was the occasion for the festival in Jerusalem. And it's why there's crowds there gathered, bigger than normal. The Passover remains one of, if not the, one of the, the most significant celebrations on the Jewish calendar. And it's, it's, uh, it's, conversion or it's, it's, um, it's transformation into the Lord's Supper that Jesus does is central to who we are as Christians. It's not, um, it's not surprising that we would gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper often when we gather together for worship. Did we lose sound? Passover and the Lord's Supper are so intricately combined. And so the question for us as Christians is, do we understand what's so significant about the Passover? And do we understand what's so significant about this central figure, the Lamb, and why Jesus identifies so closely with it himself? 
first couple of years I was in San Diego, somebody who was uh, a, a Christian but had some Jewish ancestry and invited me to go to a Seder feast at uh, one of the local synagogues. And it was the first time and only time I've participated in that. It was with um, not Messianic Jews, but uh, um, uh, but they, they didn't see the fulfillment of that. Now, it was an interesting experience. Of course, what happens at the, uh, the Passover feast? We heard mention of it in the text today. And when they come in verse 8, they were to eat unleavened bread, bitter herbs, and this lamb. Of course, the fourth element of the Seder feast that arises over time is that there are four cups of wine that are, are, are used. And, and so when Jesus gathers together with his disciples for this feast... It's not surprising that you at least have bread and wine there. And one of the interesting things that I've seen in, in, in uh, um, studying this passage, and I, I didn't quite realize this, I, I sort of assumed that when Jesus gathered with his disciples that there would have been a lamb there at the feast, and it's just not mentioned in the New Testament. But there's some question as to whether Jesus even arranged to have lamb there at the feast, because of course he says he would be the lamb. Jesus says, this is my body pointing to the bread and this is my blood pointing to the wine. And, and is there even lamb at that, uh, that, that feast that Jesus celebrates with his disciples? We don't need to answer that question because we know that there is the most significant lamb and that is Jesus himself. If you come to many people who are not believers today and you ask them, what are the holdups for belief in, in God and following Jesus? You know, of course, at the top of the list is the presence of suffering in the world. And we've talked a lot about this as we've been studying the book of Exodus. If you haven't heard some of those sermons, go back and listen to the recordings of that. But one of the other primary objections to Christian belief is around this practice of sacrifice and the question of why did Jesus have to be offered as a sacrifice in order to bring salvation to the people in order to understand that we have to go back to the Old Testament practice of sacrifices and look at why the Jewish people practice the sacrifices and what that tells us about Jesus's sacrifice and that's the central question of the importance of the lamb and why that picture is so important to Christians and to uh, Jews as well and why if we don't understand it as Christians when we come especially to the Old Testament but it's both Old Testament and New Testament and we're reading the scriptures on our own we will be will be confounded by these constant stories of not just the sacrifice but the this intricate details that are given on how sacrifices are to be practiced and offered. So that's the first thing I want to look at is that the practice of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, particularly the practice of this Passover. And then we'll move to how that is fulfilled in the work of Jesus on the cross. And then finally, how that connects us and leads us to the Lord's Supper. And hopefully today that might, those dots might be connected even more clearly than you've ever had them connected before. He gives very specific instructions. You catch it, you're to burn all the parts of the lamb. You can use a lamb or a goat. Kind of interesting that he allows for a goat. Typically a goat would be called a kid, not a, a, a lamb as, a, as referring to a sheep. But, but there's some allowance probably for those who are in poverty in this, this sacrifice. But the, the year old perfect animal is given and then they're given specific instructions on you need to roast it not to boil it or something else. And that probably is a reference to uh, just sort of advancements in cooking technique and making soups and everything else. But the picture of what a sacrifice is, is being built over time in the Old Testament. Constantly understanding more and more If you go to a Jew today and you ask them, why is there not lamb at the, uh, the Seder festive feast, which there typically is not, the answer that you'll get from them is that there's no temple 
in order to offer sacrifices rightly because in Jewish culture, by the time the New Testament comes around, the, the only acceptable place to offer a sacrifice to God was at the temple, at the hands of trained priests who knew exactly what they were supposed to do with the sacrifice. This is very different than what you read about here in this, where each family is offering a sacrifice themselves, right? And then roasting parts of the meat, and then what's not roasted, they consume in the fire. But this is a direct parallel with the practice at the temple. At the temple, there was an altar that was right there as you came into the temple. You would ascend up large stairs, you would come to the altar, and at that altar, the priests were attending it, and you would bring your sacrifice, and it was a fiery altar, and it, the, the sacrifice would either be burned entirely on the altar, or some of the parts would be set aside and roasted to be used for food for the priests. And then the rest of it would burn, be burned entirely on the altar. But that sacrifice was intended to be an atoning sacrifice, a, a, a substitutionary act where you were saying, I have sinned against God. I have sinned against one, other people and I deserve death. But in my place, I'm going to offer up this sacrifice that it would die in my place. Now, the, this to us sounds so foreign. We say, we say, this is the objection that a lot of people bring, not just non-Christians, but Christians as well. Why such an archaic form of, of worship, of, of religion? Why, why does it involve sacrifice? And this is the question that's being uh, communicated over and over throughout the Old Testament and is fulfilled in the Old Testament. And what is communicated by the sacrifice and the relationship with God and his people is that when we sin against God, or, or let's just take a human example here, an earthly example, something that we understand. When we do something wrong against somebody else, somebody has wronged you. Let's actually turn it around. Let's, let's imagine somebody has wronged you. And let's not just take a small example, but something large. Somebody has wronged you in a significant way. And the question is, what needs to happen for this thing to be righted, this wrong to be righted? I want you to put something tangible to this. Don't, don't just think in general terms. Is there somebody who has wronged you in a significant way? Or maybe you feel like you've wronged somebody else in a significant way. And imagine now them coming to you and asking you to make things right. They've wronged you. They come to you and, you and they say, what do I need to do to make this, make this thing right? And maybe they've stolen something significant from you. And they owe you hundreds or even thousands of dollars for this thing. Imagine somebody stealing a car and then wrecking the car and not having anything to bring with thousands of dollars. And, and you say, well, there's a few options you can say. You can say, in order to make this right, you need to replace what you stole. You can say, in order to make things right, you need to replace what you stole and give me some type of compensation on top of that because of the inconvenience of the wrong that was done. Or you could say, you could pay this off over time and give a little bit of grace there. Or you could say, you don't need to do anything. I forgive you. But the difference between the last example and the first three is that if you say the last one, what you have just done is you have paid the debt that was owed to you from somebody else. You have absorbed this thing 
and you had the choice to do so. You have absorbed this thing and chosen to not hold it against somebody else. This is the concept of substitutionary atonement. That a debt that is owed by one person is absorbed by the other person, either the person the debt is owed to or by a third party entirely. Substitutionary atonement, or even fancier term, penal substitutionary atonement. And you see, this is a significant idea, concept, because in the time of Israel, these legal concepts were really being developed and worked out, and many cultures practiced different laws and had different codes of laws that were developing. The Jewish system said, famously, Jesus quotes it, an eye for an eye, and a, uh, a tooth for a tooth, a, 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 an arm for an arm, a fair consequence for something that was done wrong. In other words, you don't just kill anybody who does something wrong because sometimes the, the penal, that penalty doesn't fit the crime. And one of the hallmarks of the Old Testament law is that the, the punishment fit the crime. And you still may object to some of that and say that some of these punishments seem awfully harsh and you might even object to this tie-in with Jesus and the wages of sin being death. You say, the consequences of this sin, sin seem awfully strong, that the wages of sin are death. That's what Paul says in Romans. He's referring to a number of Old Testament passages as well. But this comes straight from Adam and Eve and their encounter with God in the garden. And they have this one particular instruction, don't eat of this tree. All the other trees you can eat of, don't eat of this one tree. He says, or you will die. Or you will die. And there's all kinds of discussion we could have, and that's not today's sermon on what it is. But here's the gist, general gist of what it means to die in terms of Adam and Eve and in terms of our relationship with God. When he says, you will die, he's referring to being cast out of God's presence. No longer are we able to relate intimately with God. There's a break in the relationship. And why that is, is that that sin now has brought so much else into the whole relationship that there's no way to reconcile things. There's no way to banish that sin from the garden now. Even the smallest of sins that we commit has a corrupting influence that that, that gradually grows over time and makes life miserable. It makes life miserable. And the only way you say, life doesn't seem so miserable to me right now and sin is all around us. Why is that? And the only reason, that God, the, the Bible explains this, the only reason that it's not miserable for us is because God interjects even in this life with his common grace that he shows to everybody. Special grace is saving grace. It comes to those who believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Common grace is the grace that applies to everybody. And we don't see the world as bad as it is because God constantly sustains his creation by his work of common grace. But just like that illustration, famous story, you know, what if I step on a butterfly today and, uh, or go back in time and step on one butterfly and then what does that impact? That smallest of sin, when it enters into God's creation, corrupts the whole thing. Corrupts the whole thing. And when God comes and he gives a promise that he's going to solve this problem of sin, he doesn't say, I'm just going to put a Band-Aid over it or solve it a little bit. He says, I'm going to solve it completely. And the way that it can be solved completely is by removing all sin from his creation. Removing it all, not just minimizing it, but removing it all. And the, the plan that he sets up from the very beginning is to remove it through the sacrifice the atoning sacrifice, the penal substitutionary atoning sacrifice, not of any lamb or any other animal, but of Jesus Christ, of God himself. 
who is far more perfect than even the most perfect lamb could be. Because Jesus was a human being who had no sin in him. And in that sacrifice, he pays the price of our sin, the death, and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he experiences that separation from God agony for somebody who has never known separation from God the Father God the, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Son experiences separation from God the Father, God the Holy Spirit cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He pays that penalty, experiences separation, and then he gives us that righteousness. And I can explain that to you here now because we have some understanding of a, a legal system and you have some understanding of what you've done against other people. For the people of the Old Testament, they had some of that understanding, but one, they, one thing that they had far greater than we have is an understanding of how different, how sacrifices were offered to gods. They had an understanding of how sacrifices were offered to gods and that gods were appeased by these sacrifices. And so what does God do? He comes and he speaks in language. He speaks in language that people can understand. Now, I'm not talking about the Hebrew language at this point or maybe some Egyptian language. What I'm talking about is visual language, experiential language. Like Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look at the birds. You see how they they don't experience anxiety like we do. You, you can see it, you understand it, you conceptualize it, even if you don't have the words in the language to understand. God says, look at the sacrifices. Look at the sacrifices. You understand something of what's going on there in that sacrifice that they're being offered to God, even though you may not have all the language, you may not have all the texts that the priests, their priests, their local priests read for the sacrifice, but you see, at least in part, what's happening there. And you can understand, you can understand something of their gods and what their gods' motivations are. I don't know if you caught it as we were reading that God said in the penalty of the 10th plague that it would be uh, the death of the firstborn both for uh, male children uh, and of animals. And then he goes on to say, and their gods will be judged. The gods of Egypt is in verse 12. And all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Two things to point out right there. And the first one is that just like in Egypt, there are multiple gods, plurality of gods. In fact, we skipped over so much of the, so many of the plagues, but the plagues are, are like a list of the gods of Egypt. They look to the first plague, for example, is the turning the Nile River into blood. And the Egyptians look to the Nile River as their source of life. They worship the water of the Nile as a god. And so when God turns that river to blood, it's, it's a judgment on that god, or it's a predictor of the judgment on that god. Likewise, the second plague is the frogs, the, the plague of frogs that come. And, and there, there were uh, gods or at least one God that was a frog God. And some of the things are more closely tied than others, but sort of what happens with this is a cascading effect because when the frogs multiply, when the blood river turns to blood, probably, uh, even though these were miraculous plagues, but probably part of what's going on is that there aren't as many things eating the frogs at this point, and the frogs can jump to land. So, so their frogs multiply, and the gnats multiply after that, and the flies, and, and then the Egyptian livestock uh, dies from the, uh, the, the flies, probably, and, and, um, and then 
and then you get into the boils that the people experience on their bodies and the livestock experience on their bodies and it becomes even more apparent that these aren't just natural consequences but they're miraculous things but they make some natural sense but they're also tied into the different gods of Egypt of course the ninth plague is darkness and the uh, most significant god in the Egypt uh, pantheon was uh, was the god Ra the god of the sun so so God is bringing these judgment judgments on the gods and it raises a question uh, for us a question that is really central to the story of the Passover and that is what God do we worship you remember when Pharaoh, Moses first goes to Pharaoh and, and, he, and he says, let my people go that we may worship in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, you know, who is Yahweh? I don't know this Yahweh. I am that I am. And Pharaoh's asking a very important question that we have to ask ourselves. Do we know the God of the Bible, the God who has set up this system, or are we worshiping something else? Do we know the God who has revealed himself? And the pantheon of gods, this is a very important question for us in our time and place, because what we tend to do as Americans, very individualistic Americans, is that we create gods for ourselves. Now, we tend to pull the majority of the structure of the God from some other source or maybe a couple of other primary sources, but where we don't quite like the uh, rough edges of that God, we, we carve our own image into those things. We decide, oh, I'd rather God be a little bit more like this, and so we create that God. Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. If we come to a passage like this and we're, we're asking the question, I don't know this God, this, this God of the Passover, this God of sacrifice, then an important question we need to be asking ourselves is, do we actually know the God of the Bible? The God who says, I am the one who made heaven and earth. I am the one who brings this salvation to us. And you say, well, I don't like it. The sacrifices sound archaic. It sounds uh, unfair. It sounds unjust. And to understand that, we have to understand how this lamb solves the problems. Of course, the lamb of the Passover, the lamb of the Passover is not the ultimate lamb. The ultimate lamb is Jesus. But the lamb of the Passover isn't the first time we see the lamb introduced. You might know if had to guess where the first example of a lamb promised to be provided happens in the book of in the Bible. I'll give you a hint, it's Genesis, not Exodus. It happens back in Genesis 22. There might be one other mentioned a little bit earlier, but clearly in Genesis 22, and Genesis 22 tells the story of Abraham, the father of this nation of Israelites now, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, getting uh, this, being given this promised child, Isaac. All kinds of background on that story that we won't go into today, but Isaac is born to them, a child of promise. They have to wait years for it. They go through all kinds of difficulty of through their own faith or faithlessness, and and then they have this child. The child grows, is, a, um, is still a boy, and God comes to Moses, and he says, Moses, I want you to sacrifice your, your child, Isaac. The only child that you and Sarah have, the child that I promised to give you, I want you to sacrifice. And you say, well, that's it. Child sacrifice, I'm out of here. First thing I'll say to that is nowhere else in the scriptures do we see any kind of child sacrifice practiced or even suggested. Except in this way. And Moses explains this after the Passover. And the people of Israel, the people of that day, would have probably had a better understanding of this than we do. And that's the concept of what we have is not even ours to begin with. It's God's. 
The concept that we live lives as stewards of the things God has entrusted to us. And when God gives us these promises and gives us, provides for us, in the Old Testament times, in Exodus in particular, it says, the firstborn, the firstborn is mine. But this is in direct contrast with the cultural and even the, the biblical instructions that the firstborn uh, the firstborn, particularly male, was had a family responsibility. The firstborn male was the one who was responsible for the family unit to provide for it, to keep the land, to make sure things were going well. There's all kinds of, there's actually a command that if, the fir, if, if a child is not acting well, uh, be, being misbehaved, that he could be put to death. And it's probably tied directly to this responsibility, particularly of the firstborn male, because if you had a firstborn who was going to be responsible for the whole family, and this is an extended family, to put an irresponsible child in, in, in control of everybody else would have been irresponsible in and, in and of itself. But this concept of the firstborn being responsible over the family is in is in contradiction it seems like god with with god's instruction that the firstborn is to be given over to the lord and of course the the conflict is resolved if you understand that the firstborn being given over to the lord is the firstborn acting in the best way toward the family providing for the family's needs. He's not first serving the family, he's first serving the Lord. And when you first serve the Lord, you're enabled to serve the family. And so the responsibility of the parents with the firstborn was to dedicate the child. That's what Jesus' parents did with him at the temple. They dedicated the child to the Lord. They were giving him over for service. It's what Samuel's parents did with him when they gave him over to temple service in, in, in the Lord, that firstborn. Now, it took different forms in the Old Testament, but to give over the firstborn to the Lord, it also reconciles some of the uh, difficulty of the, the famous passage with uh, one of the um, uh, people and you find in the book of Judges who makes an, a vow to, to sacrifice the first thing that walks through the door and and, uh, um, and of course the child walks through the door and probably what happens even there is that the child is given to service in the Lord's temple, not sacrificed. So Abraham is called on by God to go and offer his firstborn child, with Sarah anyway, firstborn child as a sacrifice. And you see, you see no objection. You expect Abraham and Sarah to be on the floor just uh, in tears over this. Abraham doesn't tell Sarah, uh, but God has specifically told this verbally to Abraham. You see no objection. And what does Abraham say to Isaac? Abraham and Isaac are walking to the mountain. By the way, this mountain is in the same general location as Jerusalem is, uh, eventually is established on. That the, the Abraham is walking to the place of the sacrifice with Isaac, and Isaac is old enough to realize, Dad, we have, we have everything for the sacrifice. We have the wood, we have the fire, but we don't have anything to sacrifice. And what does Abraham say to him? He says, God will provide the lamb. Now, if you know the story, God ends up providing a ram, not a lamb. But Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Multiple times, Abraham acts in belief on God's promise. And of course, God comes when he's on the all Isaac is on the altar, bounded, and they're about to offer the sacrifice. Abraham with a knife in hand, and God says, Stop. He says, Stop. Just in the nick of time, but in plenty of time, in God's timing. And they look over and they see the ram in this thicket. and They sacrificed the ram that was caught up for them. God provided the ram for them, but he was still waiting to unveil the lamb. He was still waiting to unveil the lamb because the lamb wasn't Abraham's son, but it was God's son.
and the lambs that are used in the uh, celebration of the Passover are still pointing us forward to this one particular lamb that would save. You see the connection here? It would save all the people of Israel. If God had provided the lamb at that point with Isaac, maybe it would have saved the family of Israel, but he waited to provide the lamb through the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and then salvation goes to the ends of the earth. He provides salvation to the ends of the earth. Behold the Lamb of God, John says, who comes to take away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God. The connection of all of this to Jesus Christ being that central lamb, the lamb, not a lamb, but the lamb. Is what all of the story of the Bible from Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham and even back to Genesis 1 when God makes Adam and Eve and says, I'm going to have this solution to this problem. It's all pointing to the central figure of Jesus Christ who comes to take away the sins of the world. And the engineers among us want to say, isn't there a different way? Couldn't God have solved it in a different way? The answer to that question is given in one of the children's catechisms very clearly. Can God uh, do all things? And the answer is God can do all of his holy will. God can do all of his holy will. And so this This is God's will to do this so that he would save a people for himself. And he graciously unveils, reveals more and more of his plan over time in language that people can understand and in language that we can understand. The people of Israel, they celebrated when Jesus came in But then they were distraught and they all fell away when he was crucified. Not understanding what it was that he was doing, he shared it just with that small number of people in that upper room with his disciples when he celebrated the Passover with them, minus a lamb because he was the lamb that they needed, that the people needed. And even the disciples had to be shepherded through this whole process But Jesus says, I give this thing to you, the Lord's Supper. I give it to you as a reminder. You need to be reminded every time over and over again of why I was sacrificed on your behalf. Because it seems like it's it's far-fetched, it's disconnected, it's archaic, it's out of touch, but, but it is deeply personal. It's deeply relational. It connects to the people and it connects to you and me even now in this place. With that, I'm going to transition right over into the celebration of the Lord's Supper. You know, Jesus has this meal set out and he sets some things aside. And you know what? I just asked you all to get your elements, but I did not get any myself who can bring me a, um, a bread and wine. Jesus, on that night when he was betrayed, you can, if you have a Bible, you can open over there to it. Let's go to Matthew, because Matthew um, is kind of the most Jewish of the gospel authors in his approach to things, and um, and he'll give us a, a, a little bit of an understanding. I'm going to read a little bit more than than normal here. So Matthew um, 26. It says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he reclined at table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And They were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? 
He said, he, Jesus said, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Son of man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. Would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And of course, Peter famously denies that he would, or, or says he won't, that he, but he does end up doing so. Jesus took this simple bread. Probably would have been unleavened bread at the time. And he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he explained to them that when you eat this, you are practicing the Passover sacrifice. Now, I didn't mention earlier, there's one other type of sacrifice. I mentioned, remember I said, there were some sacrifices that were burned entirely and those were whole burnt offerings. There are some sacrifices that the priests ate the things. But then there was one type of sacrifice. There was one type of sacrifice in the Old Testament system of laws where everybody ate together. And those were called peace offerings. And the Passover was one of the peace offerings. In fact, it's, it's the most significant peace offering. And it's significant that when Jesus institutes this with his disciples, he's not just doing it with the priests or the powerful people with his disciples, but he's saying, take this to all of the people because the people all get to eat this sacrifice with me. Just like the Passover is celebrated by all of the people. As we take this, we're reminded that we are part of Jesus's body, united in him. The Holy Spirit lives in us and connects us to the rest of the body. None of us can say to another part of the body, you're less worthy or less valuable than another. But each of us is united with Christ because Christ has given himself as a sacrifice. His body was broken. His perfect body was broken for the forgiveness of your sins. Did you notice in the story that while God sheltered the Israelites from a lot of the harm of the other plagues, they still experienced some of the effects of it, except the livestock. But particularly in the 10th plague, you notice that God said, I will protect your people, but it's only because of one thing. So if you put the blood on the posts of the door, the blood from the lamb that you slaughtered should be a sign for you. More than that, it's a sign for the angel of destruction that comes and brings this death that says it should pass over that house. The blood is a sign that you have been forgiven of your sins, that you have trusted the word of the Lord and believed in him and his provision. When we drink the wine or the juice as part of the Lord's Supper, we imbibe in a, the same way that sign of the covenant, that sign of God's promise. And he warned him, don't go outside because if you go outside, the mark of the door isn't over you. 
Don't go outside of the covenant. Don't leave, depart his church. Don't find your salvation in something else, but find it in the promise of God that's contained in this blood. The blood, Jesus says, my blood was shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And he connects it. He says, it's the blood of the eternal covenant, God's promises, that he will be faithful to forgive you of your sins and pass over you in that judgment. We end on a happier note than what his disciples ended with with that supper when he, Judas runs out to go betray him and the disciples are distraught because they're told that they're going to betray him. But we leave here as a full person, a full body of Christ with the assurance of God's forgiveness that is satisfied, fulfilled, completed in Christ's resurrection, but is still pointing us to something future. It's pointing us to that perfect life without any sin. The judgment that the Egyptians experienced on that night was a foretaste of the judgment that is to come. God says, you can't hope to escape this. There's no end around. There's no outside way. The only way to be protected is by the blood of the Lamb. And the question that I'll leave you with if you're not a Christian is, are you protected by the blood of the Lamb? And if you're not... Come back next week to the Easter service. Hear the promise of the resurrection, the fulfillment. And if you are, go out today and in this week with the assurance of God's full provision and protection over your life, not just now, for, but for eternity. And share the good news of the gospel or invite somebody else to come with you to church next week. We'll have a great Easter celebration next week. We'll invite a number of our friends, especially as we're winding things down. This is going to be a last opportunity to invite a number of our friends to come and to uh, be a part of our church service. Not sure quite yet what the uh, last date of uh, the Parkside gatherings will be, but we know this is the last Easter we'll be here. So go with that confidence in the Lord. Let me pray and have our musicians come up to play our last song here for us. We can sing, Father. You have prepared a table for us, a celebration, a feast, compare it to a wedding feast, a banquet. No longer any sacrifices needing to be made, but you will have that feast laid out for us because Jesus has sacrificed for us, has become the sacrifice for us. Father, may we understand this Passover and the significance of the Lord's Supper even more as we go from this place today, that we will be equipped to give an answer for the reason we believe to any who might ask. Father, will you work in our hearts to transform our lives, especially during this season of Passover, Palm Sunday, and Easter that approaches. Lord, we thank you and we ask you all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.